He was a man bigger than life, a rock and roller that made girls weak in the knees and preachers clutch their Bibles. But was he a killer? Seven wives and two mysterious deaths, but only one would go in front of a grand jury. But did the facts really come to light? In the world of rock and roll, they say anything worth doing is worth overdoing, even marital bliss. This is the story of Sean Stevens and her husband of 77 days. This is Jerry Lee Lewis, the killer or the killer. Hey, y'all, I'm Chris Calvert. And I'm her husband, Rob Potter. Welcome to Hitch to Homicide. For better or worse. Till death do us part. Welcome back, everybody. Yes, welcome, welcome, welcome. And to our friends down under, good eye, might, good eye, might, good eye, might. That's from our friend, Melissa Hodkin. Well, thank you, Melissa, Yes, for yes. your suggestion. <laughs> yeah. We appreciate it. Yeah, she sent us a little text and said, can you say good eye, mate, to all of our friends? Because I'm from guess where? <laughs> well, wherever you're listening, be sure to like, rate, and review, and subscribe anywhere you listen to podcasts. Yep. You can also watch us on YouTube. Yes. And you should go join the In-Laws and Outlaws, yes, our closed Facebook group, if you want to hang out with like-minded true crime people. <laughs> yes. It is very much a family. It's wacky true crime. Family. It is. Yeah. Well, this day has been coming for a long time mm-hmm. for me. Okay. Because Sex, Lies, and Rock and Roll releases today. It's book 10 in the Sex and Lies series and book 20 wow. for me as an author, novellas and novels included. Yes. I took some time off to be with my mom and to start a podcast. <laughs> so it took me a little bit to write another book, but here we are. Yay. And in honor of Sex, Lies, and Rock and Roll mm-hmm. being released. Today, I've picked a mysterious rock and roll death case. And in honor of that, I've worn my Fender guitar t-shirt today. (laughs) Well, you might have to tinkle the ivories a little bit because that's where we're going, (laughs) not guitars. Although I guess he played the guitar. I don't know. Uh, No, he was just piano. He was just piano. Okay. See, I didn't didn't read that in my research. I just know that he would sit and play. Yeah. I want to say before I start, don't email me and tell me that Jerry Lee Lewis was never found guilty of anything. I know this. Yeah. I'm not saying he's a murderer. I'm walking you through the investigation into his fifth wife's death. That's it. Right. So before we get started, I want to thank some sources. Rolling Stone Magazine, Wikipedia, True Crime Weekly, Grunge.com, The Daily Beast, The Guardian, TheStacksReader.com, The Detroit Free Press, and The Memphis Press, as well as The Commercial Appeal. Nice. Well, you ready to do this one? I am. All right, let's do it. Jerry Lee Lewis was born on September 29th, 1935 to Elmo Kid Lewis Sr. By the way, there's some really good names in here. It's the (laughs) South. It's the South in the 30s to the 50s. A lot of really good names. 
Elmo Kid Lewis Sr. and Mary Mamie Heron Lewis. Wow. I had a Mamie in my family. Yeah. Yeah. He's born in Faraday, Louisiana. His family is dirt poor, as we say in the South. His father, Elmo, was a farmer, a carpenter, and a convicted bootlegger. Well, there you go. (laughs) As there were in that time period, there were a lot of bootleggers. A lot of bootleggers in in Kentucky, too. Yeah. 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 His mom, Mamie, adored music and sang with his father, Elmo. So they were a musical family. And when Jerry was three, his seven-year-old brother, Elmo Jr., was hit by a car and killed. And Elmo Jr. had shown great promise as a musician. So what does that remind you of, Rob? (laughs) Walk hard. Walk hard. The wrong kid. (laughs) The wrong kid died. died. Yeah. That's what I thought when I saw it, too. Oh, I wonder if they they – Took that idea. You know from, they did. Yeah, they took so many ideas from all of these guys. <laughs> I love that movie. When Lewis was seven, his father mortgaged the house to buy him a piano for two hundred and fifty dollars. Wow! Two of his cousins started playing piano too. Mickey Gilly, really, who's who's famous for you know being a singer as well, country singer, having yeah. his own bar, Gillies, yeah, and Jimmy Swaggart. Oh, wow, the televangelist or the evangelist? They, I guess he was an evangelist first, yeah. and then a televangelist. Yeah. Opposite ends of the spectrum. <laughs> you might say so. Man. It's been said that Jerry Lee took one look at the piano and began playing. <laughs> That made me think of you because Rob got a ukulele as a little tiny kid, picked it up, and just started playing. <laughs> yeah, and it was downhill from there. All <laughs> <laughs> uphill. It was uphill. It's been uphill. Before long, the father and son realized their fortune lay in this piano, a piano that Jerry Lee kept with him until the day he died. Oh, really? He kept this piano. Wow, I wonder what kind it was. I think it was just an old upright. And Mm. here's why I say that. Because Jerry Lee's dad would heave the piano onto the back of a wagon and they would travel from town to town looking for any space to play in. Listen, growing up, we had an upright piano in our our living room. So did we. Yeah. That's what I learned on. And it was huge and heavy. heavy. Oh, my gosh. They're all heavy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's not like a you know like a spinet you know like half size. This was the full, tall, upright, <laughs> weighed nine thousand pounds. They don't make them like they used to, honey. No, they don't. <laughs> At night, Jerry Lee would sneak into the local blues clubs. He was the only white kid there. Hmm. He'd hide under tables and he would listen to the music. All right, this is walk hard. A little bit. (laughs) A little bit. Okay, sorry, go. By day, he would play gospel piano for the faithful in the Texas Street Assembly of God. (laughs) Then he'd sneak off to a tonk, which is short for honky-tonk, on the, quote, black side of town, end quote, to revel in the devil's music (laughs) at Haney's Big House. Good for him. (laughs) (laughs) I love that story. I think that's just amazing. In 1949, when he's 14 years old, Jerry Lee has his very first public performance. It was with a country and western band at a car dealership in his hometown of Faraday. Hmm. Jerry Lee was a God-fearing and precocious boy. But by 16 or 17, depends on what source you use or which story you believe that Jerry Lee told himself, (laughs) he was married to Dorothy Barton, whose preacher father had brought his traveling salvation show to Jerry Lee's little hometown. Little tent revivals. Little revival tent. Yep. 
Now, Jerry Lee almost became a preacher himself, to which I'm thinking, <laughs> thank God. <laughs> thank you, Jesus. Yeah. 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 I'm sure God was going, uh, yeah, you know. You, we got enough right now. Yeah, We're full. Yeah. Go, go play that piano. There's no room in the inn. <laughs> But Jerry Lee went off to the Southwestern Bible Institute in Waxahachie, Texas. Mm. But rock and roll got the best of him. The audacious Jerry Lee played a boogie-woogie rendition of My God is Real at the church assembly. (laughs) How'd that go over? (laughs) Well, the very next morning, the dean of the school called Lewis into his office. Jerry Lee... You've been expelled. <laughs> he booted him out. Yep. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So he was raised on hell, fire, and damnation, but he couldn't resist the temptation of, quote, the devil's own music, end quote. <laughs> Now, after that, Jerry Lee went home and started playing at clubs in and around Faraday and Natchez, Mississippi. In 1952, while he's still married to Dorothy, he cut his first demo for Cosimo Matassa in New Orleans at J&M Studio. Wow. Okay. He leaves his bride most days and nights with his mother and sister in Faraday, Louisiana, while he's off playing these club dates. And this marriage would not last. That is marriage number one. <laughs> go figure. Yeah, go figure. Yeah. In September 1953, when he's 19, he marries Sally Jane Mitchum. 23 days before his divorce from Dorothy is final. I guess you're not supposed to do it that way. This is a pattern with (laughs) Jerry Lee. Uh, I read somewhere that Jane's brothers came a-calling with horse whips and pistols (laughs) when she told them she was pregnant. And these two would have two boys, Jerry Lee Lewis Jr. and Ronnie Guy Lewis. Now, Jerry Lee Jr., who would die at the age of 19 because of a car accident. Mm. Around 1955, Jerry Lee went to Nashville, where he started playing in clubs, trying to get people and producers interested in him. Hmm. And I was thinking, it's still kind of that way today, is it not? Yeah, yeah. Listen, back in the 80s, I was in Nashville peddling tunes on uh, Music Square. Look at that. Walking into CBS and MTM Records and asking if anybody's listening, giving them my cassette tapes, the whole nine yards. Well, Jerry Lee goes through some wives, so hopefully you're just not on that track as well. (laughs) Then in November of 1956, Jerry Lee went to Memphis to audition for Sun Records. This is Sam Phillips' label. He would end up recording there as a solo artist and would also be recorded as a session player with Carl Perkins and Johnny Cash. Hmm. And that's also a way people get discovered. Am I not? Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. They're just great session players. Sure. According to Rob, who has recorded a bunch of his stuff for clients in in Nashville, because they have some of the best session players, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Glenn Campbell was a session player. Yeah, I mean, I think they all, everybody's got to start somewhere, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Absolutely. On December 4th, 1956, Elvis dropped in to see Sam Phillips and to say hello while Carl Perkins was recording new tracks <laughs> with Jerry Lee playing piano in the backup band. Wow. And Johnny Cash was also there that day. And the four of them sat down, Elvis. Jerry Lee Lewis, Carl Perkins, Johnny Cash. They sat down and started an impromptu jam session, and Sam Phillips very smartly let the tape roll. Nice. And they sang a bunch of gospel songs together. 
And they were known as the Million Dollar Quartet. Yeah, at least. <laughs> There's some pictures of this. Yeah, I've seen those pictures. It's very cool to see them all sitting around the piano. Yeah. and yeah. They're just jamming out, just yeah. hanging out and playing. You know, and it's funny you think about it because, you know, I have musician friends and stuff and we get together and you just kind of sit there and, you know, doodle and noodle on your instruments and sing and all that stuff. And it, you're just friends. And that's yeah. what these guys were. They were just friends. Yeah. And this reminded me a little bit of a party that happens in Kentucky the night before the Kentucky Derby. Oh, yeah. And there are tons of stars that come out, you know, movie stars, but musicians come as well. And I have literally seen Travis Tritt, ZZ Top, and Josh Groban on the stage together. And then Michael McDonald joined in. And they were just singing each other's songs and having the best time. Yeah, Michael McDonald is in my top three favorite musicians, singer-songwriters. I love Michael McDonald. So it's just it's just sort of that thing. Yeah. There are all these very accomplished musicians, and they're just sitting down and jamming together. But yeah. that's when I read that. That's what it made me think of. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Michael McDonald was a, a – I guess he played session stuff in Nashville. That's where he came from. But Jerry Lee didn't really make it big until a whole lot of shaking going on <laughs> was a hit in 1957, which was banned from many radio stations really? because it was too suggestive. No. Also in 1957, Great Balls of Fire is released and is featured in the 1957 movie Jamboree. Hmm. But in the middle of the recording session for Great Balls of Fire... Jerry Lee apparently drunkenly insisted that the song was too sinful. Really? But when the record sold 10,000 copies a day, he <laughs> forgot his vow to use that money to build a church for the Lord. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's funny how money, uh, funny, money talks. How, funny how that happens. Yeah. Yeah. Good thing he didn't become a preacher. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's about this time that Jerry Lee is messing around with the girl he'll make Wife number three, hmm. Myra Gale Brown. Okay. Now, most people know about her. He's 22 and packing houses coast to coast. He was top 10 on the pop, country, and R&B charts all at once. Wow. He was at the top of the charts, and 23-year-old Elvis Presley was staring down two years with the United States Army. Hmm. And Jerry Lee's third marriage was to Myra Gale Brown. Okay. His first cousin once removed. Oops. Which means there's just one generation between the two of them. Wow. She's just in the seventh grade. <laughs> Jerry Lee took Myra to Mississippi and married her on December 12, 1957. There were a couple problems with the marriage. First, Myra was only 13. Yeah. Wow. Second, Jerry's divorce from Jane Mitchum was not finalized. Again, as I said, wow. it's a pattern with him. Jerry Lee can't wait, apparently. Yeah. So in order to make it legal legal, Jerry Lee and Myra went back to the altar on June 4th, 1958. This is also when he was making big bucks. He was making $10,000 a show in 1957. Wow, that's huge. Which would be taking home around $108,000 per show today. Wow. But when Jerry Lee and the band pack up and go to Europe to play some concerts, 
The press, one guy, it seems like the stories always sounded like there were just a bunch of press meeting them mm-hmm. at the airport. Yeah. It was one guy. <laughs> one guy was there. One reporter was there. And he just said, you know, how how old is your bride? Because <laughs> she looks pretty young. Yeah. How old is your daughter? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is this your daughter? This is my bride. Wow. He lies and says she's 15. But the press does what the press does best. They do some digging and they find out that Myra Gale is 13, to which Jerry Lee acted like in the United States, that's not a big deal. (laughs) It was a big deal in the United States. And I read that he went from making $10,000 a night to $250 a night. Really? Yeah. Because of that? Because of that. Wow. He got canceled. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they canceled Jerry Lee. Wow. I mean, he was on thin ice to begin with sure. because he's playing the devil's music, right? Right. They performed three concerts in Europe and then the tour was canceled. Hmm. And the newspapers were declaring him a quote cradle snatcher, yeah. end quote. <laughs> Poor Jerry. <laughs> In March of 1958, it's the opening night of disc jockey Alan Freed's Big Beat Show, which featured Buddy Holly, the Crickets, Frankie Lyman, and Larry Williams and his orchestra. Okay. So he's back in the United States and he's touring, but not by himself. He's with a bunch of other people. Gotcha. But the two big headliners of this show are Jerry Lee Lewis and Chuck Berry. Oh. And Jerry Lee is livid that he is not the last to perform. Really? He wants to close the show. Okay. And according to Jerry Lee himself, quote, Jerry Lee closes the show, end quote. <laughs> he speaks of himself in third person of course a he lot. Does. Of course he does. And if you've seen the movie Great Balls of Fire, Dennis Quaid does that. And I was like, surely not. Oh, no. He speaks of himself in third person. Wow. But he didn't get to close the show. He loses this argument. So he went on right before the closing act, Chuck Berry. And before his set is over, Jerry Lee takes with him on stage a Coke bottle filled with gasoline. What? He pours it on his piano and sets it ablaze. What? (laughs) Yes. He sets this piano on fire. This is also in the movie. Oh, that's right. I do remember but that. But he's just like pouring like some alcohol, like alcohol he's drinking. Like it was a afterthought once he's on stage. But the truth is it was planned. Wow. And I also read in 1958, Boston and five other Northeast cities in 1958 banned rock and roll after a riot broke out following Chuck Berry's performance. What? Yeah. What did they riot about? The Journal News reported... Quote, raucous, undulating rhythms that teenagers call cool, end quote, are banned. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah. it's funny to think, you know, because Elvis, Elvis the pelvis. Yeah. I mean, they would when he was on TV, they wouldn't allow them to. Seem from the waist up. That was it. That was it. Yep. Yeah. Nuts. But nobody really knows why he set the piano on fire other than just spite and the fact that Chuck Berry's band needed that piano for his set afterwards. <laughs> yeah. So he really did kind of close the show. Wow. And the rumor is that he walked off the stage and said, Chuck Berry, follow that. <laughs> so did Chuck never went on? I don't know what Chuck did. Yeah. 
I don't know what Chuck did. I just know that the piano was useless and they needed the piano for his set. Yeah, yeah. Now, Jerry Lee would have two children with Myra, Steve Allen Lewis and Phoebe Allen Lewis. Myra was 14 years old with her first child. I did read that it was true that she packed her belongings in a dollhouse when she moved in with Jerry Lee. <laughs> it was the biggest suitcase the, she owned, the biggest container she owned. Wow. Their first son would drown in a swimming pool at the age of three. Mm. And Myra would say that she had been subjected to every type of mental and physical abuse. And once when she called the police after Jerry and his band showed up, they were all night drinking, came back, drinking, gambling, and a fight breaks out. Jerry Lee knocked her to the floor and threatened to kill her because she called the police. Wow. And he said to her, if you ever make that mistake again, I'll kill you. Jeez. Now, by 1970, Myra filed for divorce on the grounds of adultery and abuse. He would beat her black and blue and then tell the children, quote, look, Phoebe, your mama's gone crazy. She's hitting herself in the face, end quote. Wow. Yeah. So now I'm kind of painting you a real picture of Jerry. Yeah. Jerry Lee. Yeah. A year later in 1971, Jerry Lee married Jaron Elizabeth Gunn Pate. Now, these two would be married for about 11 years and had one daughter in 1972. But by this time, the Treasury Department was on him all the time trying to seize his concert receipts. Hmm. And the IRS raided his house and they took his guitar cases and his musical instruments. They sold his cars, his furniture, televisions. Wow. And while they're there, they find a little bit of weed and a lot of cocaine. Really? Wow. In September of 1976, while watching television at his wife's house, Jerry Lee accidentally shot his own bass player, Norman Owens, <laughs> in the chest with a 357 Magnum handgun after announcing, quote, I'm going to shoot that Coca-Cola bottle over there or my name ain't Jerry Lee Lewis, end quote. Did he kill him? Shot him in the chest, but he lived to tell the tale. Wow, with a 357. 357. In the chest. Mm-hmm. And lived. And lived. Yeah, that guy, he just used up all of his nine lives. Yeah, I mean, the good the guardian angels were watching out because Jerry Lee was in the room. Man. <laughs> now, who knows if the story is true that he was trying to shoot. I know he, the story is true that he was shot this guy in the chest. Right. But whether or not he was aiming for this Coca-Cola bottle. Right. I don't know, because Jerry Lee likes to create his own narrative, (laughs) regardless of the truth. Sure. Now, Norman, the guy he hit, filed a lawsuit and won $125,000. Two months later, on November 23rd, 1976, Jerry Lee tried to crash his Lincoln Continental through the gates of Graceland. What? He's drunk and waving a thirty-eight. Pistol threatening to quote blow Elvis away end quote. Uh, do you think Jerry's got any kind of mental? He's issues got some it? issues. Chewy. Jerry Lee has issues. Man, now there's several versions of this story. Jerry Lee would say that Elvis actually called him to come over, and that the bartender in the Memphis bar gave him. From behind the the bar, a loaded gun and a bottle of champagne, as bartenders might be known to do. (laughs) Really? Okay, really? All right. 
Also, both Elvis and Jerry Lee had the same doctor, Dr. George Nicopolis, but they called him Dr. Nick, who prescribed both of these men uppers and downers. By the way, Dr. Nick would have his medical license suspended in 1981, and he was even Jerry Lee's road manager for a bit. It's all very incestuous. Yeah. (laughs) I'd like you to meet my uh, personal doctor and road manager. Yeah. But the story goes from a drunken night where Jerry Lee is invited to Graceland all the way to, quote, tell Elvis to get his ass out here so I can show him who the real king of rock and roll is, end quote. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Jerry. And according to accounts by Elvis's team, Elvis saw Jerry Lee at the gates on the security footage and told them, call the police. Yeah. And they did. And Jerry Lee was arrested, and there is a mugshot. Oh, wow. Now, his wife, Jaron, at this point, she's done. She wants out of this marriage. She files charge after charge (laughs) against Jerry Lee. He had a violent temper. He had choked her several times. Hmm. That's called foreshadowing. Uh Uh-oh. He beat Jaron, knocked her down the stairs, and threatened her life, and... When Jaron called Jerry Lee about alimony and child support, Jerry Lee went into a rage telling her that she didn't need to worry about child support because, quote, you are not going to be around very long anyway. And if you don't get off my back and leave me alone, you will end up at the bottom of the lake at the farm with chains on you. End quote. Wow. That's that's uh, that's pretty descriptive. He's not messing around. Wow. In February 1981, Jerry Lee meets Sean Stevens. She was a 23-year-old cocktail waitress at DB's, a nightclub in the Hyatt Regency Hotel in Dearborn, Michigan. Sean was from Garden City, which is a place where these little houses were built for the auto workers during the 1950s. I've seen pictures of this. They're just like little rows. It's like the perfect little subdivision. Yeah. Now, since graduating high school in 1975, Sean had been working on and off, mostly waitressing. All Sean wanted to do was to marry her high school sweetheart, Scott. Hmm. But Scott's family did not approve of Sean. They didn't like her very much. I wonder why. I think they thought she was from the wrong side of the tracks. Gotcha. Now, one of the girls from DB's, Pam Brewer, met and started hanging out with J.W. Witten. And I said J.W. because it's we're in the South instead of J.W. Witten. W. She's hanging out with (laughs) J.W., who is a road manager for Jerry Lee Lewis. And Pam flew off with J.W. traveling the band. She was in private planes. She's in a limo. She's shopping. And when Pam came back to DB's in Dearborn, Michigan, she tells Sean, hey, Jerry Lee has picked you out of all the girls at the bar to go to an after party in his suite at the Hyatt. Hmm. Now, Sean was cute. She was petite with sandy brown hair and green eyes. And after Jerry Lee met her, Pam had her come to Memphis. Jerry Lee was going on a European tour and Sean went with them. So Jerry Lee showers her in clothes and jewelry. These are all things that Sean has never had, by the way. Right. But Jerry Lee used amphetamines to keep himself up for the shows. 
And then after, he couldn't come down, and he would usually bully Sean into staying up all night with him. Mm. And when they made it back to the homestead in Nesbitt, Mississippi, she lived with him in the big house. That's what they called it, the big house. There was a pool shaped like a piano and a lake out back with jet skis. I'm assuming that's the lake where he threatened his wife with putting chains on her. Sean would be outside most of the day in the sun wearing her little bikini. You know, she's on vacation, basically. Sure. So she would do that until Jerry woke up in the afternoons, and they'd go to Jerry Lee's favorite spot, Hernando's Hideaway. <laughs> These names are just amazing. <laughs> Hernando's Hideaway was 15 miles north of Memphis, Tennessee. Now, when Jerry Lee would show up, he'd commandeer the stage and the house band would just stand around while he went from one song to the next, never really finishing any of them. So I just had this visual of the guys in the house band standing back like, (laughs) when's he going to be done? You know, arms crossed. When's he going to be done? Actually, if they were the house band, they're going, keep playing. You're fine. fine. We're good. We're good. But Jerry Lee, he would make people on the dance floor angry because he would start a song, but he wouldn't finish it. He'd Mm -hmm. like go into something else. And so people would started walking off the dance floor. And I guess one night he said, quote, you stupid, ignorant sons of bitches. You got a $20,000 show here and y'all walking off from the killer, end quote. (laughs) There's that third person again. Yeah, yeah. Now, a friend and former DB's girl, Beverly Lithgow, says, quote, Sean told about one of the first times they went out to dinner down in Memphis, and this girl came over to the table and asked for Jerry Lee's autograph. So he gave it to her, and she came back again and started talking with him. So the third time she shows up, Sean finally grabs this woman by the hair, pulls her down to the table, and said, quote, He's with me tonight. Leave him alone, end quote. Wow. And Sean said, Jerry Lee loved it. He was all about it. That was just amazing. (laughs) He loved that that happened. And he said that he loved it because she was so forceful. Yeah. But when Sean's little sister, Shelly, and her brother, Thomas, and his friend, Dave Lipke, drive down from Michigan to Memphis to visit... Jerry Lee lost his damn mind because he thought little 20-year-old Shelly, the little sister, was bringing down a younger man for Sean. Hmm. He was, after all, twice Sean's age. Right. But that wasn't all. According to Sean's sister, Shelly, Jerry Lee started slapping and knocking Sean around. But it was because Jerry Lee wanted to sleep with both Sean and her sister, Shelly, together. Wow. So I found out through all this research, Jerry Lee likes group sex. Mm. Quote, I knew what he wanted and I wouldn't do it. He made us leave, but he didn't actually tell us to go. He made Sean tell us. So she said, quote, well, if you're leaving, so am I, end quote. Mm. And it was really crazy because Jerry Lee was wild. He ended up accusing these people her sister, her brother, his friend, of stealing a jet ski. But a jet ski is pretty big. Yeah. And they were driving a Camaro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Get wow. my jet ski in your trunk. Yeah, yeah. And he watched them drive away, and he parted the curtains to the house, and they all see him looking through the bars on this window, and everybody kept saying, duck, duck, because they thought he was going to shoot them. Oh, wow. Yeah. Jeez, guy's nuts. Now, something I haven't said, you know how he, like, shot up his bass player? Yeah. He has guns all over his house. Hmm. There are bars on the windows, bars on the doors. There is glass that is broken where bullets have gone through the glass. There are bullet holes in basically every room. So he's he's a bit paranoid. He's a shooter. Yeah. <laughs> he likes to shoot his gun. Wow. In the house. Wow. Later, Sean called to calm him down, but it wasn't working. And part of that was that Jerry Lee was probably in great pain. Because by July 4th, 1981, Jerry Lee was in the hospital. What for? Well, they'd removed most of his stomach and had given him about a 50-50 shot of surviving. Really? Too much booze, drugs, Uh, hard living. Yeah. And it seemed as though his hard living was catching up with him. Sure. And while he's laying in bed at Memphis's Methodist Hospital, what do you think he's doing? Uh, He's on the brink of death. They're giving him a 50-50 shot. I have no idea. He's praying. Oh, (laughs) yeah. Okay. He's praying to the Lord Jesus, the Holy Ghost, God, Moses, anybody he thinks will listen. Yeah. Because Jerry Lee saw the error of his ways. Okay. He made peace with his God and a pact with the Lord to devote his life and talent to the Lord's work. If the Lord would give him more time. Okay. Now, after he pulls through, Jerry Lee would say in interviews that it was, quote, the turning point of my life, end quote. Hmm. When he's out of the hospital, he lays off the booze and the pills for a while. I was going to say, how long did that last? He would sing gospel to the crowds, and he started calling Sean Stevens again. Okay. She'd been living with her sister and her high school love, Scott, in Texas. Hmm. But things weren't going so well. And by the fall of 1981, these three were heading back to Michigan. And when she's back home again in Michigan, Jerry Lee continues to call. Gotcha. She takes a job working as a secretary. And she's still in love with her high school sweetheart, Scott. Hmm. And Scott's parents still didn't approve of her. And he wasn't crossing that. Okay. Yeah. So Scott didn't want her. Right. This is what Sean's feeling. Scott doesn't want me. Right. But Jerry Lee did. He'd give her anything and he'd meet her anywhere. That's Mm. what he tells her. Okay. In 1982, Jerry Lee was playing a venue in Michigan. When he flew in on a private jet, Sean, her sister, brother, and mother met him on the tarmac. Her family rode with the band, and Sean rode with Jerry Lee in the limousine. He wanted to marry her Hmm. just as soon as he could be free of Jaron. He's still married. Yep. And it wouldn't be long because on June 8th, 1982, just before the divorce settlement between Jerry Lee and Jaron is finalized, she is found dead in a Memphis swimming pool. Oh, Jaron drowned just weeks before the divorce would be final. Okay. Now, don't forget, remember he said, quote, you are not going to be around very long anyway, and if you don't get off my back and leave me alone, you'll end up at the bottom of the lake at the farm 
with chains on you. Right. She just ended up at the bottom of a swimming pool. Okay. Now, the thing was, according to Sean's mother, Sean loved one man, Scott. She wanted to marry him. She wanted to have a family with him. But he would not forgive her for going off the first time with Jerry Lee Lewis. Hmm. Now, meanwhile, Jerry Lee is calling and telling her, look it, I'm free of Jaren. Uh, yeah, because she's dead. <laughs> yeah. He told her he wanted an answer from her by the time he came back from Europe in the spring of 1983. That's when he would be back. And after Jerry called again from overseas... Sean packed her bags and left saying she was going to marry Jerry Lee Lewis. Wow. But not before having a bachelorette party where she told one of her girlfriends she was marrying Jerry Lee because, quote, and I'm sorry here, Uh quote, he has a big dick and a lot of money, end quote. (laughs) Well, that's pretty much straight to the point. (laughs) She didn't mince words. What's your bottom line? She also told her girlfriends that she wasn't crazy about him, but she'd never had that kind of life. And she wasn't going to have kids with, quote, that old creep, end quote. Oh, man. Well, I mean, how old was he at this point? He's twice her age. He's 45, 46, 47. Oh, wow. Late 40s. There are pictures from the wedding, and he looks like he's got one foot in the grave (laughs) and another on a banana peel. (laughs) He's not looking good. Oh, boy. I think the surgery and taking out half his stomach really took a toll on him. I'm sure. But she tells her girlfriends she was going to stay married as long as she could to him. And when she was done, she was, quote, getting the hell out, Hmm. end quote. And it wouldn't take long. Uh Uh-oh. Just two days before the wedding, she called Scott and says to him, quote, if you just say the words, I'd come back. But Scott did not say the words. Yeah. Sean would marry Jerry Lee wearing ivory silk. Jerry Lee wore a white tuxedo and a red ruffled shirt. <laughs> Class all the way. Now, a justice of the peace married them because they couldn't find a preacher on short notice. They were in a rush. And no one thought about the blood test, which back then you had to have. By the way, that was all for venereal diseases and syphilis, yeah. right? Yep. Yeah. You had to take a blood test and wait three days before you could get your marriage license. Right. So they thought they might have to take the wedding to Tennessee, where they have less strict rules about getting married. (laughs) But J.W. Whitten, he made a phone call and he fixed the license too. quote, in the business, it's called juice, end quote. (laughs) Okay. That's also called foreshadowing. Uh Oh, here we go. Now, Sean's family had flown one way from Michigan for this wedding because Sean says to them, Jerry Lee will send you home on the jet. But when it was time for the wedding, Jerry Lee wasn't really around. And Sean's mother found him in the master bedroom with Dr. Nick. And he had six pills, two of each color, like three different colors, two of each. Okay. And the ceremony did finally happen, and they invited the National Enquirer to be there to witness and document it. Hmm. And he said to them, quote, it was love at first sight. I've never believed in that sort of thing, but there it was. The killer fell in love, end quote. <laughs> Talking about himself in third person again. The killer. Yeah. Okay, whatever. 
But the day after the wedding, Sean's whole family is standing outside the house in the heat because no one would let them in the house. And after Sean finally wakes up and does let them in the house, Jerry Lee is still in bed. And when he did join the rest of the family, he was not in a good mood. Really? He was salty, as my daughter would say. (laughs) Very salty. What was his problem? Well, I think he got married, got high, got drunk, and now he was coming down. Gotcha. According to Sean's sister, Shelly, she went into the kitchen for a couple of beers and he yelled at her, quote, what do you want? And I said, quote, I just came in for a couple of beers. And Jerry Lee pounded his fist on the counter and screamed, quote, you scared of me? You should be. Why do you think they call me the killer? How'd I get that name, huh? End quote. Wow. Then he slapped Shelly's face. She tried not to cry. She knew she couldn't tell her father because then it was going to be a fisticuffs. Yeah, yeah. Sean took the family to a hotel near the airport and drops them off. But Sean's family didn't have money for plane tickets home to Michigan. Hmm. And they couldn't get a car, a rental car, to drive back to Michigan. So Sean's mother, Janice Kleinhaus, calls Jerry Lee and asks if they can borrow money to get home and that she would pay him back right away. And Jerry Lee said, quote, I don't want no money back from you, end quote. Wow. He and Sean came by a couple of hours later. Sean was crying when they meet the family at the airport. Sean gets out of the car, puts $1,000 cash into the palm of her mother's hand. And Jerry Lee kept the motor running in the car. He didn't even get out, didn't look their way, nothing. Jeez, is he bipolar or, I mean, just... He's knucking futz, that's for sure. Yep. Sean would tell a friend that life with Jerry Lee was like jail. She was being watched all the time. And he was a completely jealous person. And that is an understatement. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. I mean, Jerry Lee is very much rules for thee, but not not for for me. me. Yes, very much so. Jerry Lee had a concert in Nashville, Michigan. There's a place called Nashville, Michigan. Hmm. On August 28th, 1983, just weeks after their wedding, and Sean invited her sister Shelly for a visit while she's waiting to get into her new apartment. And on Shelly's first night at Jerry Lee's home, they all went to Hernando's hideaway. (laughs) Jerry was in a good mood. He was laughing and joking with Shelly. He's dancing with his new bride, Sean. And when they left the bar at four in the morning, he's in his late 40s. Who can party till four in the morning? Yeah. Maybe once a year. Maybe once a year. Yep. But Jerry Lee wasn't ready to go to bed. And back at the house, he played the piano. (laughs) New recordings were played for Sean and her sister, Shelly. And when one song came on and he started playing, it was called One and Only You. He pointed to both girls and said, quote, this is dedicated to you, end quote. Now, I don't know about anybody else who's got sisters, who's got a husband who's a musician. (laughs) But if Rob dedicated a song to me and my sister, I'd be like, what the hell, man? (laughs) What the heck is that? Uh, I'm I'm the wife. 
Yeah, bad move, Jerry. Attention, attention needs to be paid here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Not not a good thing, Jerry. But he did it because he wanted to sleep with both sisters together. Wow. And Shelly goes to bed. She's like, I'm out. I'm going to I'm going to bed. I'm tapping out. Tapping out, I'm done. <laughs> Shelly goes to bed. And when she gets up the next afternoon, because, you know, they're going to bed at four and five in the morning, Jerry is still up and he still hasn't slept. Jeez. And Jerry's sister, Linda Gale, and her children come over for a visit. And when Jerry Lee comes out to the pool where Sean and Shelly are sitting out in the sun in their little bikinis and stuff, quote, he said something like, I think you girls better get your shit together. And then he hit me on the thigh and slapped me across the face. Gee, was. Sean sat up to say something, and he hauled off and backhanded her across the face, too. Wow. He hit her hard. So he hits the sister first. Right. Then goes for the wife. Wow. And then he just looked at them really crazy and walked off into the house again. Mm. I think he's pissed because he didn't get what he wanted that night. Of course, yeah. Now, Shelly tells her sister, I'm out again. I'm leaving. Yeah. And this time I'm going to the police. But Sean said it's not a good idea to go to the police down here. Because they were, quote, with Jerry, Mm. end quote. And they would find a way to charge Shelly with something, not Jerry Lee. Wow. So Jerry Lee really has sheriffs and politicians and DAs. They're all in his back pocket. Sure. So Shelly decides just to leave. (laughs) No police. But her sister tells her to wait because, quote, I'm not staying if you don't. I don't know what he'll do to me if I go back in that house. And Shelly tells her sister, Sean, to get your stuff together because I'm leaving. Right. With or without you, Shelly's out. Right. (laughs) Speaking of herself in third person. Yeah. Yeah. Shelly tells Jerry Lee that she's leaving, to which he replies, quote, go, get your ass on out of here. Get walking, end quote. Mm. And then he mumbled something about her just being a bunch of trouble. Now, according to Shelly, Sean took up for her sister saying, she's been as quiet as a mouse since she's been here. And Jerry didn't hear this. He was over by the record shelf and he started yelling, speak up. What'd you say about me? And he grabbed some albums out from under her hands, out from under Sean's hands, and he smashed them to the floor. Then he knocked her across the room. Gee whiz. Linda Gale, Jerry Lee's sister, sees all this and she's like, Bye. Yeah. <laughs> I'm taking the kids. Yeah. Bye. She's yeeting on out. Thanks for a good time. Gotta She's go. She's done. She's gone. Wow. Sean is whimpering and saying to him, you're so mean. What's wrong with you? And she sits down in this big chair and he picks up a set of keys and he throws them at her. He hits her in the forehead with these keys. <laughs> and she bent down to get the keys and she told him, quote, I'm leaving with Shell. I'm not staying here with you. So he tells her, quote, I'll show you leaving. He grabs her by the front of her robe and he hauls her off down the hallway. He says, quote, you're my wife. I'll kill you before you leave me, end quote. Man. Now, Shelly leaves the house on foot. She's got nothing. She leaves the house on foot. She hitches a ride to the nearest store and she calls her father. And back in Detroit, Shelly calls her mom, too, to say, look, this is what happened. Yeah. 
Yeah. And she leaves out the part when she's telling her mother about the group sex. Gotcha. Now, at 3.30 a.m. August 23rd, 1983, Sean calls her mother saying that she's leaving Jerry Lee. And when her mother says, we can talk about this tomorrow, because it's the middle of the night she's Mm -hmm. calling her mom. Yeah. Sean tells her mom again that if she can, if and when she can get away from Jerry Lee, she's leaving. And she also tells her mom to tell the family, don't call the house. Don't call this house looking for me. Mm. And when her mother says, well, let's talk tomorrow, Sean says, quote, I don't know if I can, but I will be in touch, mom. So she's basically saying, don't call me here. I will call you and I'm going to get out yeah. when I can. You know, if if one of your kids calls you and says, you know, this is going on and I'm going to leave and stuff. I think the last thing that I would say as a parent is we'll talk about this tomorrow. What? What What was that about? Yeah, I think I don't know if she thought Shelly was a drama queen. I don't I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if she thought she was overreacting. Yeah. You just don't know. Sure. Hindsight is twenty twenty, and I have seen interviews with her parents. They're very regretful about everything. Yeah, I'm sure. That same night, Jerry Lee is seen sitting alone in his Cadillac. He's stuck in a ditch off the exit ramp of the freeway that leads to Memphis. Think he'd been drinking? Probably. <laughs> yeah. The sheriff's office is called, and two deputies are on the scene where Jerry Lee told them to fetch his tow truck man, David Camp, a guy who is also the campaign manager to a man named James Albert Riley, or Big Dog, who is running for sheriff. (laughs) These names. Gee whiz. Yeah. Wild names, all very incestuous. Yeah. And I don't mean in the sexual way. Just the, the business dealings. Sure. They take home Jerry Lee and they tow his car. There's no breathalyzer test. There's Mm -hmm. no sobriety test. And the whole thing is not even recorded in the department logs. It's just Jerry. And it was apparently nothing new. And it was thought of as a community service. (laughs) Now, anybody else out there drinking and driving, car in a ditch? Yeah. Your ass is going to jail. (laughs) Yeah, big time. (laughs) Meanwhile... Sean, after hanging up the phone with her mother, calls Scott's sister. It's the middle of the night still, you know, 3, 3.30, 4 in the morning. Sure. And she's asking about Scott, and she wants to make sure Scott's sister meets her at Jerry Lee's concert in Michigan on August 28th, just in six days. Okay. I want to meet you in private in six days. Okay. And while she's talking to Scott's sister, Sean is in mid-sentence when the phone line goes dead. No one would speak with Sean ever again. Wow. Tuesday, August 23rd, 1983, around noon. As the official story goes, Lottie Jackson, the housekeeper, went to wake Sean because a department store had showed up where she had ordered some drapes and they were there to hang them. Okay. Lottie Jackson said she went into the room. She couldn't wake Sean. She calls an ambulance. When they arrive, Sonny Daniels and Matthew Snyder arrive. These are the ambulance drivers. And they check on Sean, who is dead. She has no pulse. Mm. Now, Matthew Snyder's 20 years old, and he's a rookie. But he has said that even the rookies knew it was a kind of a routine thing to come to Jerry Lee's for somebody who's passed out or has had too much yeah. or has partied too much. Yeah. 
Now, Lottie, the housekeeper, is crying, and she goes to get Jerry Lee in his bedroom. He's in his robe. He looks surprised to see Sonny Daniels, who tells him, Mr. Lewis, I'm sorry, Mrs. Lewis is dead. Now, Sonny notices two bright red scratches on the back of Jerry Lee's hand from his wrist to his knuckles. Mm. Something got him good. And he even said it was looked like a cat, like a bobcat got to it. Now, Jerry Lee asks if he's sure. Are you sure she's dead? (laughs) Is there anything they can do at the hospital? And Sonny tells him if there was something could be done— we would have already yeah. taken her. Yeah. Then Jack McCauley, the deputy sheriff, shows up at that moment. It was just, it was lucky that he was patrolling on Malone Road when the ambulance made its turn for Jerry's house. Because according to the Rolling Stone magazine article, this is not Sheriff McCauley's ordinary patrol area. Mm-hmm. He just happened to be there that day. It's all coincidence. That morning. Yeah, yeah. Sonny, the ambulance driver, was going to tell Jerry Lee there would need to be an inquest. But Jack McCauley takes over and says, clear the room, clear the room. And Sonny didn't remember Jack introducing himself to Jerry Lee. And Sonny, this little ambulance driver who's new, is thinking, oh, these two guys know each other. Hmm. They do. McCauley and Jerry Lee met alone in Jerry Lee's little den for over an hour before the state investigators or anybody else came to the house. Getting the story straight. And Sheriff McCauley would never file a report on that conversation, only a report that told how he came in the wake of the ambulance just after 12.30 p.m. on August 24th, 1983. And how he was delayed in the driveway by two employees of Goldsmith's department store who were there at the house to hang drapes. And how Matthew Snyder told him, quote, that a female subject was dead in one of the rooms, end quote. He's the other ambulance driver. Now, his report continues. Upon entering a small bedroom on the east side of the residence, Mr. Lewis was bending over the bed where a white female was lying, partially covered by a bedspread. She was clad in a negligee. When I first arrived, Mr. Lewis's speech was heavily slurred, but he was alert and coherent. Really? Yeah, yeah. I telephoned the sheriff's office and requested a justice of the peace if the coroner could not be located. All right. Well, they don't call the coroner. Really? They don't call the coroner. Wow. Call a justice of the peace. Wow. And they did this because this sheriff says there's no visible causes of death and because Mr. Lewis's bathrobe contained apparent bloodstains, and he had a cut on his wrist. Hmm. Right? Yeah. All hinky. Yeah. At 151, the report says Macaulay told Jerry Lee that J.W. Whitten had arrived but wouldn't be able to enter the residence until the investigation was over and that Mr. Lewis commented, quote, we need to find out who killed, I mean, how she died, end quote. <laughs> Oops. 
So this sheriff, Jack McCulley, he's the first to report that Jerry Lee has blood spatter on his robe. What he doesn't seem to see is the blood on Sean, on her hand, on her hair, on her clothes. There's a bra in another room. There was a film of dirt all over her body and bruises on her arms and hip. She had broken fingernails with dirt or dried blood underneath them. (sighs) But none of this made it into Sheriff McCauley's report. I guess he didn't feel like that was important enough. Well, they didn't make it into the report yet. Hang on. Not yet. All right. The ambulance driver, Charlie, tried to call the coroner. He's like picking up the phone. This is what you do. I'm calling the coroner. But Sheriff McCauley said things could get too public, and he wanted, quote, radio silence. Hmm. He didn't want anything going out over the radio. And Sheriff McCauley called from Jerry Lee's kitchen into Sheriff Dink Sowell, (laughs) who, like McCauley, wanted to keep everything hush-hush. Because Dink's about to retire, and James Albert Big Dog Riley was Dink's chosen successor. But Big Dog's opponents in the upcoming election would just love to get their hands on some of this information. And salivate over that. Because Big Dog is a regular at Hernando's Hideaway. Mm. And this is a crowd that his opponents say he's getting support from the, quote, drinking drug crowd, end quote. (laughs) So he's going to stay as far away from this investigation as possible. And Big Dog's biggest campaign contributor? Just take a wild guess. Uh, Could it be uh, Jerry? Jerry Lee Lewis. There you go. And Big Dog's campaign manager? The tow truck guy, David Camp. Wow. Told you. Incestuous. Yeah. The latest contribution, the latest contribution to his campaign, $500 payment, It had been recorded just the day before. (laughs) But somehow, records of this transaction will disappear from the courthouse files. Magically disappear. So these two, Macaulay and Dink Sowell, they turn the investigation over to the Mississippi Highway Patrol and get the case out of DeSoto County. And the coroner in DeSoto County hadn't been called, remember, radio silence. But they called Whitley Perryman. A justice of the peace. Now, old Whitley had signed plenty of papers at Jerry Lee's house because whenever Jerry Lee was in trouble, he never went in front of a judge. Justice Perryman came to him. (laughs) Oh, man. He's got it made. Even when Jerry Lee was faced with charges of assault and possession of a deadly weapon, he did not go in front of a judge. The justice of the peace showed up at his house. Wow. Now, Whitley shows up at about one o'clock and he finds Jerry Lee in his recliner. Quote, I just asked him, Jerry Lee, have you any reason why she might have died? (laughs) It's all very phonetic in these quotes. And he just said she'd taken some sleeping pills. Hmm. End quote. Now, Whitley was supposed to hold a coroner's inquest convene a jury of six citizens to take testimony and determine the cause of death. But the sheriff told him there's not going to be an inquest. There'd be an autopsy. So why would there need to be a coroner's jury? An autopsy 
where Jerry Lee picked Dr. Francisco <laughs> to do the work. An autopsy in Memphis, not Mississippi, where Sean had died. An autopsy that Jerry Lee Lewis was paying for. Oh, wow. Now, Whitley knew who Jerry Lee was really well. He'd socialized at his house before, and he didn't even take a look at the body. And he didn't notice, it didn't seem to him that Sean had slept in the guest bed. Like, he's barely taking a glance. Hmm. But when he does, he's saying, well, she's on top of a made bed. It didn't look like anybody had slept in that bed. It looked like she'd been placed Placed. in that bed. Yeah. Sheriff Sal called the county attorney, William W. Ballard, Bill Ballard. Wait, I got to correct you on that. W. Oh. (laughs) William W. Ballard. (laughs) See, I learned real quick. You did. Bill Ballard saying he wanted a legal paper authorizing an autopsy. Hmm. So Bill Ballard drafts this agreement ensuring that all autopsy information is going to be given to him. Hmm. And Sheriff Sal told Jerry Lee that he'd already contracted for the autopsy with Dr. Jerry Francisco, the same man who only witnessed the autopsy of Elvis Presley, but then went out with the consent of the other two pathologists and told the press that Elvis had died of cardiac arrhythmia and that absolutely no drugs were involved. Oh, jeez. Wow. So Dr. Francisco is going to cost a bundle far more than the county's $260 limit for an autopsy. But Macaulay had taken care of that. He and Jerry Lee had agreed that the killer, which I thought was kind of funny, (laughs) the killer would pay. And because of that, it would remain a private report. And it never needed to be placed in a public file. Wow. You pay for it, you keep it. Yeah. Now, while all this is happening, Jerry Lee's just in his lazy boy waiting for it to be over. He wasn't weepy. And when Ballard squatted next to the big recliner and showed Jerry Lee the authorization, the killer just said, where do I sign? (laughs) It's all he cared about. The state police, Jay Clark and lead investigator and his partner, Creekmore Wright, showed up at the house. Later, Creekmore is going to say that the place gave him the creeps. (laughs) There were bars on the doors and windows and bullet holes in the walls all throughout the home. There were panes of glass in the house that had bullet holes. And around every corner they turned while looking through the home, they found another gun just lying about. Wow. They found bloody clothes in the master bedroom. The master bed had a big canopy. It was unmade, and there was broken glass on the floor. No big hard pieces had fallen to the floor. You couldn't tell what was broken. Right. The bed, his bed had been stripped. There were no sheets on that bed. Okay. And there was a tray with leftover food in the corner of the master bathroom, and there were also bloody clothes. There's a nine millimeter pistol on the nightstand, and there were bullet holes in the wall that the State police officers said they tracked from the bed to the wall. He'd been shooting at something from his bed. Good Lord. But there are holes all over this house where he'd been shooting. They get Jerry Lee out of the house. He doesn't want to leave. They get him out of the house. And when he leaves, he takes with him a metal strong box, two feet by two feet by two feet deep. And Creekmore, this is the state officer, asked to see inside. He's like, you can't walk out of here with that. We need to look inside. Yeah. And Jerry Lee opened the box. 
He had diamond jewelry, some papers, and tens of thousands of dollars in cash. Wow. I guess if you need to make a run for it, you could. Yeah, there's your survival kit. Then he got in his black caddy and drove off with his manager, J.W., Now, state investigators and crime lab technicians would work for another full day collecting enough drugs to fill three single-spaced pages on a crime lab list. Wow. And at least one hypodermic syringe. Mm. There was no way to tell if they were illegal drugs or prescription drugs. Right. The job of analysis wasn't going to be finished for months, and the job wasn't even started when Bill Ballard— And a county grand jury wrapped up the case with their pronouncement that no crime occurred. Okay. I'm going to walk you through this a little bit. Okay. So what they're saying is that certainly there was a fight at Jerry Lee Lewis's house on the night the killer's young bride died. And certainly evidence was altered. Broken glass was still on the floor, but the big pieces had been removed. Sean's garments with substantial bloodstains were found stuffed in a paper sack in the master bathroom. Who tried to clean her up? Who reclothed her in this negligee? How did she get into the guest bedroom? And who stripped the sheets and pillowcases from Jerry Lee Lewis's master bedroom? Hmm. Well, it was Lottie Jackson, the housekeeper. Oh, wow. Lottie stripped those sheets shortly after he took control of the scene. Macaulay found her locked in the master bedroom. He knocked. She wouldn't respond. He called. She still wouldn't open up. Lottie finally came to the door, and Macaulay saw the cleanup was happening. It was in progress. Wow. And Macaulay revealed everything about that episode in a supplemental report (laughs) dated nearly a month after the grand jury says, nothing to see here, move along. Wow. But no one needed more reports to shatter the killer's fragile story. If Sean went to bed after a quiet night, how did she get dirty? If he shook her and dragged her up and down the long hall, why didn't her feet show the contact with the carpet? If he laid her atop the guest bed when he could carry her and shake her no longer, how did she get under the covers? Yeah. And why did he send Lottie to wake her? Why did he say he'd just woken up? So he's he's contradicting all of his stories. Sure, yeah. But it, it doesn't even matter. So her family wants to know, why would Sean tell her mother that she's going to leave Jerry Lee the night before? Right. Then call her ex-boyfriend Scott's sister to make plans to meet her in six days. Yeah. And why promise to telephone them soon? And then, because as they're saying now, Sean committed suicide. Ugh. Wow. Yeah, if all else fails. Yeah, she did it to herself. Yeah. Wow. So the official report for Dr. Francisco was drafted by Jay Clark, Creekmore Wright, Sheriff Sal, and County Attorney Bill Ballard. It's the crew, man. It's the wrecking crew. Yeah. (laughs) That the ambulance arrived on the scene at 1252. The victim was located in the front room lying on the bed with a cover up to her neck. The bed was neat and did not appear to have been slept in. There was, by visual inspection, blood or what appeared to be blood on the web of the left hand. There were also bruises on the arms, on the upper right thigh. She was clothed in a blue nightgown. There were no items near the victim's body. So they decided, let's wrap it up. All done. All done. Yep. 
Now, by that time, they knew about the blood on Jerry Lee's robe and on his slippers. They knew or they had reason to assume that the body was moved to the guest room and relocated and put in this nightgown. Mm -hmm. They knew someone had tried to clean up the house after a disturbance, and they saw the bloody clothes in the bathroom. And there's blood on a rivulet and a door and blood in a spot on the carpet. And they could see a bloody piece of gauze on a cabinet in the billiard room where they were writing the report. They're sitting there writing this report. There's evidence all around them. Uh, And all of these things are left out of this report. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. And if you want to talk about these reports today, everyone is either dead or they're not talking. Hmm. Now, later that day, Jerry Lee called Sean's mother. He would speak with Sean's sister, Denise, and he would call Hernando's hideaway looking for hypodermic needles because the, quote, GD cops cleaned me out, end quote. Uh, He needs his hypodermic needles. Yeah, he's got to get his heroin shot. Meanwhile, Sean's family back in Garden City, Michigan, is devastated. They've been told that Sean just didn't wake up that morning. (laughs) And Sean's mother was told to direct all of her questions to the county attorney, Bill Ballard. And Sean's body is sent to the Brantley Phillips funeral home, where this young mortician, Danny Phillips, notices a lot. Mm. Sean had traces of blood in her hair and under her broken fingernails. She had bruises on her arm and had a fingernail indentations above these bruises, showing that she'd been grabbed and manhandled. Yeah. She had discolorations around her neck. There you go. That's what I was waiting for. As if someone had exerted pressure there or strangled her. Danny tells this to the press, and the county attorney, Bill Ballard, was not happy about it. (laughs) I'm sure he wasn't. (laughs) But others think it's hinky, too. Charlie Ward, the guy who drove the ambulance, quote, you know, something don't seem right. I'd never say Jerry Lee killed that girl. It might be innocent as a train wreck, but I'd like to see it investigated. To me, I just can't believe that girl just got into that bed and laid down and died. You just can't make me believe it, end quote. Good for him. So Sean's mother is to call Bill Ballard. Dr. Francisco called and told her if she had questions to call Sheriff Sowell. Danny Phillips told Sean's mom what it looked like before he took her to the Memphis doctor, to Dr. Francisco, to do the autopsy. Hmm. And Sean's mother is like, hold up, hold up, hold up. This is all happening too fast. Please don't do an autopsy on her. Please do not cut her up. I want to see her. Do not cut her up and bury her before I can get there. That is what she's begging them. Right. But Danny at the funeral home told her there wasn't anything he could do because the autopsy was private and that Jerry Lee was paying for it. And when she called Bill Ballard to tell him to stop, he told her, I'm sorry, it's too late. (laughs) But later he's going to say, oh, I misspoke. When I told her it was too late, that autopsy really hadn't started yet when she called. Wow. So they're just really giving her family the runaround. Sure. When Sean's family speaks with Jerry Lee, he told the mother that he didn't know what happened and that they were getting along so well. (laughs) And Sean's mother calls BS on him, telling him that her daughter, Shelly, was there when he slapped Sean and dragged her off to the bedroom, which he denied, saying, well, I might have slapped her, but I didn't drag her off, okay? (laughs) End quote. Uh. 
Okay. Sean's mom just hangs up. She's done. She's done with Jerry Lee. She's done with all of them. Yeah. And a friend of Sean's put her family in touch with an attorney in Garden City. His name is Michael Blake, who started calling Mississippi, but his calls wouldn't be taken. And he finally got a call back from Jay Clark, who agreed to take statements from Sean's sister and mother. And then later, Sean's sister, Denise, spoke with an incoherent Jerry Lee, who said to her, quote, I'm going to do my best at this. All right. Sisters says she's a bad girl. This is a bad girl. End <laughs> wow. quote. Saying your sister's a your sister's dead, yeah. and she's a bad girl. Yeah. Your sister's a bad girl. Obviously, slurring his words. Yeah, that was pretty good though. Was it? Yeah. And I, I, I could have done it with a cocktail, but I probably wouldn't gotten through <laughs> all these names. Early the very next day, Doctor Francisco tells Bill Ballard, "Quote: No foul play." Pulmonary edema, fluid in the lungs due to causes unknown. <laughs> it was consistent with a drug overdose, but he said it would be some time before the drug scans, the tox reports, would be completed. Wow. So Francisco got Sean's body out of the lab within hours, back to the funeral home. The embalming had to be hurried. The body was due in Jerry Lee Lewis's county in Faraday, Louisiana, on Friday night. And Sean had better look good for the funeral on Saturday, the 27th. (laughs) Four days. This has all happened in four days. Which under suspicious circumstances is unheard of. Yeah, exactly. Sheriff Sal would release his account of the Sean Lewis death. Jerry Lee had cut his finger on some glass. And that was probably responsible for the blood on Sean Lewis's hand. The bruises were superficial, the kind that anybody might have. She'd been up during the day, which is why she laid down on an unmade bed. There was nothing to indicate that anybody had been attacked. No marks of violence of any kind. Nothing to see here. Move along. Now, they didn't know when the autopsy would be completed, Didn't see that there was any emergency now since the autopsy had removed so much of the urgency because, according to the sheriff, quote, a lot of questions have been answered at this time, end quote. Mm. And with the drug scans, after the autopsy, Francisco found what he wanted. He called Bill Ballard to tell him fluid in the lungs resulted from an overdose of methadone. Oh, wow. Which is a synthetic narcotic most commonly used to wean junkies off of heroin. Hmm. Now, who was looking for a hypodermic needle? Yeah. Oh, wow. Now, it might have been a suicide or an accident. It didn't matter which, as long as it wasn't a murder. Right. But it was Jerry Lee's methadone, and she had 10 times the dose in her system. Wow. And later, that young mortician would say he thought he saw a track mark in the crease of her arm. Now, Bill Ballard put out the news. Autopsy links Sean Lewis's death to methadone. That's the headline. Hmm. And the evening paper said Lewis's wife killed herself, official feels. (laughs) Then Ballard later went out and said his quote, quote, I believe it was a suicide. She was no stranger to drugs, end quote. And no stranger to drugs was supposed to be, according to him, off the record. Hmm. So they buried Sean after a funeral at the Assembly of God Church after Jerry Lee took a rosary from Sean's hand put there by her family. 
So he doesn't go to visitation. Jerry Lee doesn't go to visitation. Sean grows up Catholic. Her family is very Catholic. And while they see her in her casket, they place a rosary in her hand. And when he sees her the next day, right before the funeral, he says, who the F put that there? Get that shit out of there. Wow. And he yanks it out. Jeez. Now, the funeral was more about Jerry Lee than it was about Sean. Well, surprise. Yeah. And Jerry Lee's story was that they were just a-talking and a-watching TV. She went to the bathroom and she said, quote, I took some sleeping pills. And he said, well, how many? You didn't take too many or I'm going to call the ambulance. And she said, no, it wasn't that many. Wow. And then people came to hang the drapes. They wake Jerry up. And that's when he tried to wake Sean up because it was her project. I also read it was her project Drapes or a women's job was a woman's job. (laughs) Jerry Lee saw that her lips were blue and then he couldn't wake her. He smashed the wall with his hands, cut his thumb. That's where the blood comes from. He walked her up and down the hall, carrying her, shaking her. And he finally laid her on the other bed. That's how she got to the other bed. Well, at least he thought it through. Yeah. Jeez. And she had this gown on, apparently, and she called out to Lottie. Lottie, I can't get Sean awake. Call the ambulance. (laughs) End of story. There you go. The next night after Sean's funeral, Jerry Lee was back in Memphis at (laughs) Hernando's Hideaway. Two girls at his side under each arm. Bill Ballard had said he took that case to the grand jury just to take all doubt out of the picture. Quote, (laughs) I've tried to make it clear, he said, that the only reason for a grand jury, the only reason we ever had a grand jury is to try to dispel some of the suspicion. There is still no indication of foul play. Wow. There was a 10-page report from Dr. Francisco, and he had an expert testify in front of this grand jury that the cause of death was an accidental suicide. And Sean is described to the jury as a smart 25-year-old, quote, no stranger to drugs, end quote, a woman who knew what sleeping pills were, who had used them once with success. Hmm. But that night, Dr. Francisco described her taking 10 to 20 tablets of a drug she'd never been known to use. So which one is it? Is she well known to drugs? Did she take Sleeping medication on a regular basis? Right. Did she not know how many she was taking? It Just none of it adds up. And she's planning on leaving. She's going to yeah. leave him. Yeah. The grand jury only met for three hours on September 21st, 1983. And the only witnesses were Jack McCauley, the guy who took charge at the scene. And he told the EMTs what to do. Jay Clark, the lead investigator with the Highway Patrol, and Dr. Francisco. <laughs> and then it was all over. Wow. They didn't even have Jerry Lee on standby to testify in front of the grand jury. And Jerry Lee is very happy with the results. The vote was nine to three. The people thought it was suspicious. One thought Jerry Lee should go to trial. Hmm. Now, Jerry Lee would marry two more times, Carrie McCarver in 1984, just a year after his 77-day marriage to Sean is over. They would divorce in 2005, and finally Judith Brown, the ex-wife of Myra Gale's brother, becomes his final wife, his seventh and final wife. (laughs) Man. Now, Jerry Lee wouldn't do much during the 90s and during the early 2000s because he was in such poor health, and he was unhappily married to Carrie, and no one would produce his work. But then he made three commercially successful albums of duets, mixing rock and roll and country, and he went on tour. Hmm. He's an old man on tour. Hmm. 
Jerry Lee Lewis met his maker on October 28th, 2022. I didn't want to say he died because he's meeting his maker. (laughs) He was 87 years old and Jimmy Swaggart conducted his funeral service. Wow. I can't believe he made it to 87. I'm not done. Uh Uh-oh. Hang on. Okay. Then in January of 2023, Jerry Lee is dead and gone. A woman named Dawn Garlock came forward. She had a story to tell about Jerry Lee Uh in the late summer of 1983. Uh Dawn said she had been basically abducted in Memphis and taken to the home of the killer, Jerry Lee Lewis. Present that night, wife number five, Sean. Uh Dawn is convinced that the reason Sean died was because she was helping her that night in DeSoto County, Mississippi. This was music to Sean's family's ears because they always knew something wasn't right. Right. She died the night she told her mother she was leaving Jerry Lee. And after DeSoto County washed their hands, they said there's nothing to see here. The family went to the FBI. That didn't come up with much. But in 1984, Rolling Stone published their story that I relied on heavily for this podcast by Richard Ben Kramer. And Geraldo Rivera even did a story for 2020 where he said, quote, we're not accusing Jerry Lee of committing a crime, end quote, as I am not either. I'm just telling you this story. Right. But for Jerry Lee's part, speaking of himself in third person, he said, quote, there is no way Jerry Lee Lewis could ever or would ever think of taking another person's life, end Mm. quote. Nevertheless, this Don Garlock, whose name was Don Fallen at the time, told the Detroit Free Press in January of 2023 what happened. Her story is difficult to confirm or deny with the law enforcement records that are available, which are pretty sketchy. Right. But Don's story begins at Hernando's Hideaway. Mm. She and another waitress friend who worked together at Bad Bob's then went to Hernando's Hideaway, which was about a mile away. And her friend asked her if she wanted to go outside and smoke a joint. And she goes out the door and sitting in the car there, her friend is getting into this car, this Cadillac. And she said, come with us. And driving the car is Jerry Jerry Lee Lee Lewis. Yeah. Yeah, who Dawn actually recognized that that it was him behind the wheel. Right. And she said the moment she got in this car, she regretted it. Mm. And she said, listen, just turn around. I want to go back. I forgot my cigarettes. Mm. And Jerry Lee Lewis said, quote, I will get you some, end Mm. quote. And then they sped across the Tennessee border. And when they got to Jerry Lee's home, Dawn said she thought Jerry Lee was just going to get something and come back to the car. But then she saw Sean open the door. And Don and her friend got out of the car. They go inside. And Don remembers Sean putting an album on and dancing around and sitting in her husband's lap, in Jerry Lee's lap. Okay. And when Jerry Lee and Sean left the room, Don tried to call her mother to come pick her up. Mom, mommy. Yeah. yeah, come get me. Come get me. But Jerry Lee walked back into the room, took the phone from her hand, and hung it up. Wow. Then he threatened her, quote, you don't know who I am. I can have you arrested for trespassing, end quote. Then according to Don, she looked at Jerry Lee and said, look, I don't like you. I don't like your music. I want to go home. Wow. Now, can you think of anything worse to say to Jerry Lee Lewis? Yeah, yeah. That pretty much would seal your fate. Don sees Sean walk out to the pool area and Don follows. And that's when she hears Sean Lewis tell Jerry Lee, quote, I'm not going to be responsible for these girls, end quote. Mm. Dawn said she watched Jerry Lee grab Sean by the arm. 
And a little bit later, Sean and Don lock eyes, and Don felt like Sean was saying to her, get out. Get out of here. So Don grabbed her friend, and they ran to a nearby home. It was an older couple. This older couple lived there, and these people graciously drove them to Memphis. And the next morning, her mother wakes her up, wakes Don up in a panic, because she goes home and tells her mom the whole story. Sure. Her mom wakes her up in a panic and says, Jerry Lee's wife is dead. And that could have been you. Wow. Now, a couple weeks later, Dawn was questioned by local authorities. She said they were really uninterested in what she saw. They just had a lot of questions that seemed strange to her. They wanted to know if she'd seen drugs or syringes at the house. (laughs) And she had not. And that was the end of that. Then in the early 90s, she read the long Rolling Stone article, and at the end of the article, she sees where there were problems with the investigation and that it's suggested that local authorities missed or didn't even look for evidence. Hmm. She read the quote that said, there were two girls who were picked up by Jerry Lee at Hernando's hideaway three nights before Sean's death, and Dawn believes, I'm one of those two girls, Yeah, except... It wasn't three nights Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, it's wrong. It was the exact same night. Yeah. Now, for years, Dawn tried to get in touch with Sean's family. In 2022, she posted a story on Facebook, just a comment in somebody else's thread who had brought up Sean's mysterious death. And Sean's family reached out to her. They believe Dawn. They believe her story. And it sort of lines up with what they believe to be true all along. Right. Jerry Lee and Sean were fighting, and he murdered her and tried to make it look like an overdose. Right. He was just so angry, got out of control perhaps, but one thing for sure, there was a lot of missteps in the investigation, whether they were choreographed or they were just actual people who were incompetent in their job remains to be seen. Right. Only Jerry Lee knows the truth, and he took it with him to the grave. Jerry Lee Lewis was right up until his death, a committed Christian who trusted the Lord to forgive him. Quote, that's his job, end quote, he once said. Jerry Lee thought a forgiving God was his get out of hell free card. Yeah. Well, you got to confess and repent, Jerry Lee. I don't know about that. Yep. So what do you think? How do you think this panned out? Do you think he had help from the authorities? Do you think it was an overdose? Was it a combination of all of those things? But that is the story of Jerry Lee Lewis and Sean, his fifth wife. And that's all I have to say about that. Hey, Hitch to Homicide listeners, the wait is over. If you're a reader or a fan of my Sex and Lies series, Book 10, Sex, Lies, and Rock and Roll is now available on Amazon. With a successful tour and two years of sobriety under his belt, rock star Noah Hart is ready to put his secrets and the past behind him. That is, until his former bandmates and business partners are murdered one by one, and suddenly he becomes the prime suspect. When FBI agent Louisa Hathaway is assigned to the case, No one, including her partner, is aware she carries her own secrets, including an undeniable infatuation with rock and roll's bad boy, Noah Hart. As the body count rises, Agent Hathaway is torn between unraveling the truth 
and falling for the man who might be the killer. Don't miss this new book, Sex, Lies, and Rock and Roll, by me, Chris Calvert. Only on Amazon. Rock and Roll will never die, but it might kill you. Jerry Lee giving musicians a bad name everywhere. Here's the thing. I love his music. Yeah. I love his music. I always loved his passion on stage. Yeah. And listen, when he was 80, he still, there are pictures, he still had his foot up on the piano playing. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, he was a showman. He was very much a showman. Yeah. So much passion for that, but just lost in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah, well, it sounds like a lot of it had to do with drugs and alcohol, and he just, yeah. You put the combination in with people who aren't stable to begin with, and it can just be a disaster, which it was. We can only hope that the Lord forgave him in the end. Exactly. Well, well, let's lighten it up a little bit with um, some other maniacs, with a little bless your heart. Well, bless your heart. All right, this first one. I'm calling the new Apple idiot, and that is spelled with a small I, big D, I O T. An I D ten T error. That's what I call that. Yeah, I had a I had a I had a tech guy say to me, "This sounds like an I D ten T error," and I wrote it down. Idiot, got it. Okay. Well, a San Francisco thief pedaled his bike up to a woman on the sidewalk, snatched the iPhone out of her hands, and rode away. Exactly. Unfortunately, unknown to him, the woman was in the middle of demonstrating the iPhone's new GPS tracking device, which worked. The thief was captured minutes later. How fortuitous. (laughs) Exactly. Love it when a plan comes together. Exactly. Apple's like, one for us. Chalk that up. All right. Number two, I'm calling this a Molotov cock and bull story. Oh, that's a good that's a good title. Yeah. Following a dispute, Craig Islesworth of Bithlow, Florida, allegedly tossed a Molotov cocktail at his neighbor's trailer's home. That's a bad idea. Well, just as the winds shifted, sending Embers back onto his own trailer. Luckily, he was arrested since he no longer had a home of his own to return to. Karma. <laughs> Sucks, doesn't it? That's called karma. Yeah. Okay, number three. Just kidding. Don't you hate it when you suffer a heart attack and you think you're going to die, so you confess to a 17-year-old murder only to find out that you're not going to die, and then you get sentenced to life in prison as a result? Well, damn. (laughs) Yeah. So does James Washington of Nashville, because it happened to him. Mm. All right. He's like, shit. (laughs) Wait, I I was just kidding. I didn't really mean it. Okay, number four. Parlez-vous, idiot? The victim's jewelry was missing, the electronics were gone, and a window was smashed. No wonder she was hysterical when Officer, and I can't pronounce this, Chargé Maru of Calgary Police arrived. It's French. I know. Wah-ha-ha. Just put some wah ha ha in front of it. You're very good at that. Uh, he did it all through France, y'all. All through France. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Then her French-speaking father called. Speaking in French, she explained that it was all a scam in order to get the insurance money. What she didn't suspect was that Officer Maru speaks six languages, including French. Oh, wee oui, wee. Oui. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so she's busted. So très désolé. I only know a few <laughs> French phrases. I only know we. Oui. Which is, uh, I'm so sorry. Yeah. 
Oui, oui. Oh. There it is. I'm telling you, all through France. I'd be like, I think I want a baguette, honey. I'd be looking in the bakery. I think I want a baguette. Let's and go he get would one. say, oh, 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 oh. that's Let's exactly what he would do everywhere. Right. <laughs> this is what I live with. That's it. Keeps me entertained all the time. It's your cross to bear. It is. Well, if you have a bless your heart or you know someone's heart who needs blessing, yep. go to hitchtohomicide.com. There's a pull-down menu yes. where you can also suggest a case. And don't forget to check out my wife's latest book. Don't forget to check out my new book. If yep. you're a reader on Amazon, Kindle Unlimited, all the Sex Lies books are there for a short amount of time. Go check them all out, but go rock and roll, man. Yes. Sex, lies, and rock and roll. <laughs> That's right. Rock and roll will never die, yep. but it might kill you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the tagline for the book. Yep. The tagline for the book. Well, we're so glad that you joined us again today. That's my amazing husband out there. And that's my beautiful bride in the booth. Join us next time on Hitch to Homicide. <laughs> Bye, y'all. <laughs> 